Hey guys, happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. That's Raina. And that's my lovely co-host, Marie. Marie, are you as stoked as I am for Friday? Yes, girl. It has been quite a week, but we are so excited to kick off this Friday with you all and having you join us. So I'm going to be real. We're recording this on Tuesday (laughs) and it already feels like the longest week. I asked my manager if tomorrow was Thursday, like, and even then... Then I'm like, please tell me it's Friday. It has been quite a week. Oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh, we will admit it. So I'm just super excited to sleep in tomorrow. Thank God. Yes. All right. Well, real quick, we just want to ask that you please follow us on social media. We are at Those Murder Girls Podcast on every platform you can have. So go <laughs> find us. We are going to get right into today's case because it's a good one. It was submitted by Sally in Chula Vista. Thank you, Sally. Um, I had never heard of it, and when she submitted it and I reviewed it and showed it to you, I was so stoked. Yeah, this is a super good one. And, you know, if you guys want to submit cases, you just head over to our website, thosemurdergirlspodcast.com. There's a case submission button, and you can submit them to us there. Sweet. All right. Well, let's get started. Marie, the floor is yours. Okay. Chris and Sherry Coleman lived in a quiet neighborhood in Columbia, Illinois, near St. Louis, with their two sons. They had 11-year-old Garrett and 9-year-old Gavin. The Colemans were a well-to-do family of four who neighbors say were very loving, they were very active, the kids were active in the neighborhood often, being seen playing around outside with their friends, you know, as young children do. Sherry was a working mom. She had the opportunity to stay home with the kids, but she really enjoyed working and contributing to the family. Husband Chris worked as a bodyguard. More specifically, he was the head of security for Joyce Myers Ministry, and that was in Jefferson County. Joyce, she's a world-famous Christian televangelist, and Chris had actually grown up most of his life knowing Joyce. She was close friends with Chris's parents, Reverend Ron Coleman and Connie Coleman, who were former pastors at the Grace Church in Chester, Illinois. Chris's career provided a very comfortable living for the Coleman family. Chris had met his now wife, Sherry, around 1997 at a canine training seminar that they had attended. And at the time, Sherry was an MP in the Air Force. The two hit it off right away. They married a short three months after they met, and Sherry found out she was pregnant with her first son, Garrett. Well, then their second child, Gavin, followed shortly after that. The Coleman's oldest son, Garrett, was he was known to be a fairly quiet kid. He was very sweet, but very shy. While Gavin, the typical younger brother, he was always busy getting into something. The boys loved sports. Older brother Garrett had a love for football, and Gavin just loved baseball. The Colemans were described as the quintessential American family, so it appeared from the outside at least. Now in late 2008, Chris began to claim that he was at the center of a conspiracy to shut up Joyce Meyer from preaching the word. Not everyone agreed with Joyce, and as many people out there that love her, there are just as many people out there that hate her. I mean, kind of just like anyone in the spotlight, right? Yeah, I think just like anybody who puts herself out on a platform like that, like people are either going to love you or hate you. Exactly. So Chris told his friends and family that he was receiving some pretty threatening emails with direct threats toward him and his family. Sherry was terrified for her life. She even became more so when a threatening letter was left inside their mailbox on one occasion. Chris was out of town traveling with Joyce at the time when this letter arrived. 
So Chris had showed these threatening emails and messages to, you know, the people close to him. And he had even filed a police report with the Columbia police. One frightening threat received in November 2008 in particular read, quote, tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. I will kill them all as they sleep, end quote. Everyone close to the Coleman's were worried about the family's safety. The Coleman's neighbor, Justin Barlow, he was a detective sergeant with the Columbia Police Department. He had offered to install a security camera at his house that would face the Coleman's to catch, you know, any suspicious activity or or try and identify this person that's making these threats. Well, the footage caught on that very security camera would later be the center of a high profile murder investigation. It's 5.43 a.m. on May 5th, 2008. Detective Justin Barlow's home security camera catches Chris Coleman leaving his home, heading for his morning workout at Zach's gym just over the river. One hour later, Chris makes a call to his neighbor Justin at 6.43 a.m., asking him to please check up on his wife. Chris said that Sherry should have been up by then, and he was getting worried because she wasn't answering any of his phone calls or text messages. Justin tells Chris, yeah, there's no problem. He'll go over there and he'll check on his family. Before heading over to the Coleman's, Justin calls into dispatch at the Columbia PD to request a patrol car. Justin then grabs his weapon, radio, and his handcuffs. Dang, he is not playing. Nope. Justin is seen on the camera walking up the Coleman's property just a few minutes after hanging up with Chris. Justin went to the family door along with a responding officer. They both knocked and rang the doorbell. They waited. There was no answer and they couldn't hear anything inside. Justin and the officer walked around to the back of the house where they found an open basement window with the screen popped out. They entered in through the window and made their way upstairs to the kitchen area. Upon entering, they were both overwhelmed by the smell of spray paint. As they made their way upstairs, they see it. The writing on the walls. Messages of hate. Messages that read, you knew this was coming. And a little further down the wall, just the word punished. The two men made their way upstairs to the bedrooms. And that's when they discover Sherry's body dead in her bed. It was obvious to them that she had been in a struggle. Sherry had three ligature marks on her chin and at least one black eye. Both boys were also found dead, each of them in their beds. One of them had even been spray painted on with the same red paint that was on the walls upstairs. Mother and her sons were all strangled to death as they slept. Very early on in the investigation, Columbia police knew that this murder investigation was beyond their means. Things like this didn't happen in the sleepy town of Columbia. They had no idea which direction to go in first, and so they called in state and federal officers for assistance. Chris Coleman, now the only member of the Coleman family alive, arrived back home from the gym at 6.56 a.m., Law enforcement officers and a pastor deliver the crushing news, notifying Chris that his entire family is dead inside. Officers at that point had prepared for delivering this news to Chris. They were prepared to restrain Chris from rushing into the home to check on his family. This turned out to not be the case. Chris actually made it quite simple for them. He never attempted to go check on his family, and he never once asked for details as to what happened to his family. 
Chris just sat quietly in his front yard while law enforcement examined the crime scene. Law enforcement was careful to keep the details of what was going on inside from Chris. As some law enforcement on the scene had thought Chris may have been responsible. Following protocol, Chris was taken by ambulance to a local hospital for a medical exam. While in the ambulance, first responders noticed that Chris had a bunch of scratches on his arm. They asked him what those marks were from. Instantly, Chris becomes livid and starts punching the gurney in a fit of rage. Oh, wait, wait, what? Yeah, I have no idea. Like, was he going to be like, oh, I got these scratches from the gurney that I just hit? <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on, Chris. So Chris is brought in for police questioning just a few hours after the discovery of the bodies. Chris immediately tells law enforcement about his career as a bodyguard for the sometimes hated high-profile televangelist Joyce Myers and all about these threats that he had been receiving. Now, seasoned detectives first thought, why would the bodyguard of Joyce be the target? I mean, if the hatred was toward, you know, Joyce herself, why was Chris the target? Chris wasn't the high-profile person himself. Why would anyone want to hurt him or his family? Why would they want them dead? Chris told officers about some specific threats he got, saying, quote, Tell Chris his family is dead. They don't deserve to live with this someone that protects the fucking Joyce. In another profanity-laced email, quote, Deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. End quote. Chris said that the last message of hate that he received was on April 27th. Now, this was about a week before the murders. And this said, quote, this is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. Now, law enforcement, they noticed two things about these threats specifically. Two words were misspelled, opportunities and publicly. The Coleman family's electronic devices were taken and as evidence, and it's not long into their investigation that the detectives uncover their first damning piece of evidence. So the email threats that Chris had been receiving, they were all sent from one email address, an IP address and device. Chris's work laptop was used to send each and every threat. Now, the question becomes, who could have sent Chris those messages from inside his own home using his secure device? So cops, they begin to zero in on Chris as their main suspect. And another clue that's uncovered a short time later in the hunt for this mysterious killer is a clue that would come from the pathologist who performed the autopsies. Veteran pathologist Dr. Michael Bowden, who has also worked many high-profile cases, most currently the examination of the sick Jeffrey Epstein, Dr. Bowden said that based on the test performed to determine the time of death of all three of the Coleman family members, he concluded that they had all been dead since at least 3 a.m. the morning of May 5th. This approximate time of death is just a couple hours prior to Chris leaving his home in the morning for the gym. So going back to the security camera set up at Chris's neighbor's house, the one that was strategically placed facing the Coleman's mailbox and driveway to catch the person making these threats, nothing was picked up on that camera that morning of the murders until Chris left at 5.43 a.m. Was Sherry unknowingly sleeping with the enemy? As Chris sits in a police interrogation room, he's denying, denying, denying having anything to do with the murders of his wife of 12 years or either of their children. 
Chris says that he checked on Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin before leaving to the gym and that they were all alive, sleeping peacefully in their beds. Yeah, he checked on them to make sure that they were dead. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> Now, according to Dr. Bodden, only half of this can be true. They may have all been in their beds, but it was scientifically impossible that the three were alive at approximately 5.40 a.m. Because rigor mortis had already set in when the bodies were retrieved, they were cold and stiff. Detectives interviewed friends of the Coleman's who said that Chris and Sherry may have appeared to have the picture-perfect family and marriage, but in reality, that couldn't be further from the truth. According to close friends, the couple was on the brink of divorce at this time. Text evidence shows messages that Sherry sent to one of her friends saying that Chris had asked her for a divorce. She said that the reasoning that he gave was because that she and the boys were getting in the way of his professional career. Sherry also mentioned that if anything happened to her, Chris did it. It would be at this time, very early in the investigation, that detectives discover another piece of huge evidence. And guess who it points towards? Chris Coleman. Chris had been having an affair. And not only having an affair with another woman, but with Sherry's best friend from high school. Her name was Tara. Tara was a cocktail waitress at a casino in Florida. Chris and Tara met through Sherry during a visit. Police uncovered a document on Chris's work laptop entitled The Day That Tara Changed My Life. Oh my gosh, really? Like, be a little bit more obvious. Why don't you try to fucking hide this? (laughs) And not only that, yeah, and not only that, but they also discovered nude photographs of Tara and Chris. They had exchanged these photos via text message and email over a period of time. Jeez. Hold on, it gets better. There was also an X-rated video of Chris and Tara together in a Hawaii hotel room on one of Chris's work trips. Apparently, Tara had been traveling with him quite often. Oh, she's just like the live-in girlfriend on these travels? I guess. But wait, there's more. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Chris was like obsessed with Tara. He actually documented things about her body parts, including her measurements and and what he loved about them. He even documented her ring size and the name of a future child they would have together. This baby was going to be a girl and her name was going to be Zoe. I just can't with Chris <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, Oh my god! He just has a second life like all planned out. Uh. So while Chris is being questioned about these findings, he is still insisting that Tara and him are just friends. Okay, Chris, just stop. Like, you've already been caught. Like, you might as well just fess up. Like, stop lying. Yeah, totally. He's a total douchebag oh and a preacher's son. Oh, and speaking of him being the preacher's son, in an interview that Ron Coleman sat down for, he said that this must have all happened because Sherry wasn't taking care of Chris the way that a man should be taken care of. And therefore, he understood the affair. He actually blamed Sherry for Chris's infidelity. Ron said, quote, it is built in every man. If your wife doesn't respect you, you are going to find respect someone else, end quote, saying that all men have desires. Okay, well, now we know why Chris is the way he is, following in his father's footsteps. Totally. 
Another thing that was discovered in this electronic trail against Chris (laughs) was the fact that he often misspelled two words, the words opportunity and publicly. The same words that were misspelled in the email threats that were sent to Chris or supposedly sent to Chris. Okay, well, doesn't everyone have spell check on their computers, first of all? So the fact that he's misspelling these words <laughs> is just insane to me. Come on, Chris, right click. Seriously, <laughs> and can't we just lock him up by now? We can, but not until he finishes the story because it gets better. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so it does get better because during an interview with the detectives... Chris is noticeably trying to conceal those scratch marks on his arms. Chris tells the officers that he's freezing and he needs a blanket. The cops were confused because the room was not cold whatsoever, and Chris did not appear to be in any state of shock. So the officer was like, you want a blanket, like, now? Question mark. And Chris says, yeah, he's, he's freezing. So the cop goes out, and he grabs a blanket and then comes back in. Chris, who is wearing shorts and a muscle tee, takes the blanket and covers just the tops of his legs with it. (laughs) That's weird. I'm not quite sure what that was about, Chris. (laughs) The lead detective lets Chris know that they spoke with his neighbors and a few of them said that they heard him and Sherry arguing the night before the murders. Chris denies ever raising his voice and saying that he has no idea why anybody would say that. Well, cops obviously know about the affair at this point, and they just need Chris to start talking. But Chris is sticking to his story that his relationship with Sherry was good. They even had a vacation to Disney World planned. Oh, my God. Tara lives in Florida. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. (laughs) Chris says Sherry had actually fallen asleep on his lap the night before. Chris said that before bed on May 4th, he checked all of the doors to be sure that everything was secured before he headed upstairs. Chris asked detectives at this point if he needs a lawyer and they let him know that it's up to him. And at that point, they were just trying to get his account of events. Like just what happened, Chris? Then detectives ask the question, have you been having any relationships outside of your marriage? Chris says no, but does mention Tara's name, saying that he had been talking to her lately, but they were just friends. Nothing further. So the cops already have the nudes and the written (laughs) evidence from Chris's laptop to the contrary. And the detective asks Chris, what would he think if he said he didn't believe that Sherry was alive when Chris left for the gym? Chris says, well, I think that she was. (laughs) Thinks that she was. She's either dead or alive, dude. Was there red spray paint all over the house? (laughs) So Chris, without tears, but in a whiny tone, says that she was fine when he left, that she slept all night right next to him the entire time. I don't know if I believe that, Chris. (laughs) So cops are getting irritated at this point. Like, dude, quit lying. We have all the physical and scientific evidence and it's all pointing towards you. So they're like, no, Chris, nobody but you was alive this morning past 3 a.m. And they ask him again, were you involved in her death? He says no. They ask him if he knows anyone that would be involved or anyone that he had arranged to have them murdered. He says no. So they tell Chris about the red spray paint that's all over the walls. Chris denies ever having red spray paint at his house but he's like hey if you find it it could be old and maury povich (laughs) determines that that was a lie it's just probably old guys (laughs) don't worry 
Okay, well, not only was there a freaking spray paint can of apple red paint in the house, but there was a receipt for the paint with Chris's name on it. I mean, how tall is this mountain of evidence going to get before they just cuff him? It's like, shut the fuck up, Chris. We're close. I feel like we're close. We're getting there. So Chris has no idea, but at this time, Tara's actually being interviewed by the police. And this is the first of three that would take place over the investigation. And Tara is singing like a bird. Tara says she and Chris have been talking since November of the prior year. She said that she traveled with him on work assignments to Phoenix, Maui, and Hawaii. Tara said that Chris and her relationship was absolutely serious. They were in love and that Chris was going to leave Sherry for her. Chris would send photos of himself at night, proving that Tara and him were not sleeping together or that he was like even near Sherry in their own home. So weird. So cops were like, okay, your story is the complete opposite of what Chris is telling us. He's telling us right now that Sherry and his marriage was all roses and sunshine. And then Tara was like, no, they didn't hug. They didn't kiss. They didn't do anything anymore. So Tara says that she and Chris were going to get married after he left Sherry and that Chris was trying to work all of that out because with his career as a bodyguard for a televangelist, that was going to be really hard for him to do as a divorce was frowned upon and he didn't want to lose out on his very well-paying job. Oh, and this well-paying job didn't just provide for the Coleman family, but Tara had access to Chris's debit or credit card, we're not sure, and she was allowed to use it to pay all of her bills. Tara had no doubt that Chris was going to make their relationship work. Tara said that prior to the day of the murders, Chris had told her that he was going to be serving his wife with divorce papers on May 5th. And honestly, Chris is probably uh, wishing that he had stuck to that at this point. (laughs) So during a second interview with Tara, detectives informed Tara that Chris had not successfully kept the nudes that she had sent of herself to him. And guess who he sent them to? His own father. (laughs) Shut up. Yes, his father. I mean, that doesn't really surprise me because if we learned anything from Rachel O'Brien's podcast, Seven Deadly Sinners, we know that not all pastors and priests are as pure as they like us to believe. So, <laughs> so yeah. And by the way, if you guys have not listened to that series, it is amazing. I so would, good. It's so good. I binged it one evening. I go to bed super early. I stayed up until like... 10 just so I could finish I literally couldn't stop listening to it so go subscribe to it you guys it's really good you'll love it so in the video from the interrogation room you can see Tara's entire demeanor just completely changed when the detectives told her that now at the conclusion of the interviews with Tara detectives were able to determine that Tara did not have any involvement or knowledge of Chris's plan to pretty much obliterate his family So AT&T was subpoenaed for Chris's phone's records, and they showed that the morning of the murders, Chris starts calling Sherry's phone one minute after the home security camera shows Chris leaving for the gym. He goes on to call her three more times before he returns home. Now, a latex glove was found in a center medium of a nearby highway, and it had red apple paint on it. It was collected as evidence, and it was determined to be the same type of glove that Chris Coleman had access to at the offices of Joyce Myers Ministries. Chris had the master key to the office, and that's where the gloves were stored. 
With all the evidence mounting against him, Chris was finally arrested at his parents' house on May 19, 2009, and booked in the Monroe County Jail for triple murder. And that's where he sat waiting his trial date. Tara, wearing her promise ring that Chris gave her, signifying their marriage that would have taken place January 2010, was a prosecution's star witness. During the trial, the state's prosecuting attorney argued that Chris had the motive to kill his family to start a new one with Tara. The prosecution showed steamy video of the two and the photos that were exchanged to show Chris's motive to kill his family. Joyce Myers was also a witness. Via a pre-taped interview, she stated that Chris would not have been fired for filing for divorce, but if anything, would have been relieved of his duties due to the immortality. Prosecutors argued that Chris sent all of those threatening messages from an email account, destroychris at gmail.com, to himself, and that he had actually created that email account from his work computer at his home. Chris Coleman claims that none of that is true and that a hacker is responsible for all of those messages. Chris's guilty verdict was delivered to him in a courtroom that erupted in tears and cheers. Over 100 people stood outside the courthouse in the pouring rain and erupted in cheers once they heard the verdict was guilty. Chris Coleman was sentenced to three life sentences without parole, one term for each life he took on the morning of May 5th. Chris maintains his innocence, regardless of the mountain of physical evidence against him, saying that he will request a new trial and continue to fight for his freedom by representing himself the next time around. In July 2020, a circuit court judge dismissed Chris's petition for a new trial via a Zoom video hearing. As of today, Chris Coleman remains a prisoner in a Wisconsin correctional facility. Chris is a terrible man, and honestly, I think he's right where he belongs. Mm-hmm. And that is the tragic story of the Coleman family murders. Please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us now. Leave us a five-star review. Don't forget that if you have a case that you want us to look into, please head over to our website so you can submit it. We want to thank you again, Sally from San Diego, for submitting this week's case. We hope you all have a safe weekend, and we will see you all back here next week with some more murder. Bye, Bye guys. guys.